I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, please, to James chapter 1 again, where we continue our series through James that we're calling Living Up to Your Faith. This is sermon number nine in the series, and I'm aware of that because I took some time to compare where we are in James with the number of uh, times that we have left to see where I might be finishing this series. And I had this on my mind because on Wednesday night, I found out that some of our college students uh, have been having conversations about whether or not I would finish James by the time they're done with their college careers. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of them said, well, it's only five chapters. And the other one said, yeah, but think about Revelation. And she was like, oh, yeah, you know. So I'll just say that this is sermon number nine in our series. <laughs> and uh, we're already at the end of chapter one, and we started in February, so we may be able to do this in a year. But I have to tell you, James has really surprised me and really convicted me. And I hope it's doing the same for you. Because James is saying, you say you know the Lord. You say that you have embraced the good news of salvation through Christ. So many people in Greenville say that. You say you're a follower of Jesus. Well, James says, here's how you live up to that. Here's how you live it out. Here's how you make it real. Here is what you need to see happening in your life. Here is how you should be living if this claim is true. This is Pastor James's message to his scattered church as persecution in Jerusalem, beginning with the martyrdom of Stephen, drove them to far off places. It's been about maybe 10 years since that happened. And James is hearing reports of how these Jewish believers are struggling to live in pagan environments across the empire. So he sends out this letter to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, Jewish believers, hoping that this letter will disciple them in their faith. And James is comforting. He understands their trials. We've seen that already. He knows what they are facing, but he also knows what's right. He knows what's true. He knows what will really help them. So he's not only encouraging believers how to live, he's also getting very intense when he corrects error, when he weeds out falsehood. He wants to set believers on the right path. And if you've been moved and convicted as I have, and the letter has made you look introspectively at your own heart and your own life, then that is only because James is being borne along by the Holy Spirit as he writes to the church the very divine and inerrant and inspired word of God. This book, this little letter that we're reading and, and trying to examine was breathed out by God through James, to the early brothers and sisters in the church. And because it is the word of God, it is eternally true, and it has the same ability to penetrate our hearts 2,000 years after it was originally written. And the place that we have come to at this point in the letter, I think, is a perfect example of the penetrating nature of this word. The last two times we examine this text, we were in verses 19 through 25. James says, starting in verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The phrase, receive with meekness the implanted word, that is the key, we said last time, to the entire end of this chapter. In fact, so much of the rest of James is going to come back to that statement. James says we need to be quick to hear. That is, in the context, quick to hear and obey the word. And he says later in the text that we need to receive the word of God meekly. That's what the believer does who is living up to his faith, living up to her faith. We receive the word of God meekly, that is, submissively, obediently, putting ourselves under the authority of the word of God and following it by God's grace. We read the Bible, we hear the Bible preached, we believe what it says, we do what God wants us to do. That sounds very simple until our loves get involved, our own desires, our own want to, our own I'd rather that those loves and desires are in competition with. When that happens, there are defense mechanisms that we sometimes use to disobey the word of God. We don't think of it that way, but that's really what we're doing. And James is on to us. He brings up several of these defense mechanisms in the text. For example, uh, one defense mechanism is that we're speaking when we should be listening. James says we need to be slow to speak when we hear the word. This is all in the context of the word of God. Slow to speak when we hear the word. That means we we spend time listening, reflecting, agreeing. But we are not submitting to the word when we are more interested in answering back than we are listening. Oh yeah, I know that. Oh, I've heard that. I'm doing that. I already believe that. That doesn't apply to me. I've taught that verse before. (laughs) I've taught it better than that guy's preaching right now. (laughs) I've read that verse before. And we don't sit silently and let the word have its effect because we aren't as submissive as we think we are. We don't want God to penetrate our desire. We don't want him to deal with that sin that disbelief. We don't want our image of ourselves to be contradicted or destroyed. We want to be thought of as a good Christian, surely not the best Christian, but respectable, nothing to see here, no great spiritual needs, no serious issues. But if you are not taking the time to humbly and meekly and regularly submit to the word, then you are not living up to your faith. I don't care how well any of us think that we are following God's word. There is not a single command in the Bible. There is not a single truth that will not compel us to greater obedience and greater faith if we do not simply sit still and listen and reflect and agree and say yes to God, and then allow the penetrating, transforming work of the Spirit to make us more like Jesus Christ. Do you believe that this morning? That that we can sit under the Word of God that we've heard before, and it can still continue to drive us forward? And as a genuine believer, 
we should have a keen awareness of this need, this spiritual poverty, this dependence upon God to bring about this change, because we know that we have so far to go and that our own ideas and our own loves and our own desires, as wonderful as we believe they are, and we usually think we're right about things, as wonderful as we think they are, they will only bring us to ruin if we are not bound by and guided by and submitted to the Word of God. This is the context that we come to at the end of this chapter. It's a call from the Lord for us to be real about our walk with the Lord, to give into Him as our master, to wait on His command, to love and celebrate His truth. Now, we can't take time to review all of what James says here in verses 19 through 25. I already preached this text already, but there are other defense mechanisms, the ways we shut down the process of hearing and submitting to God's word meekly with humility. He urges us to be slow to anger because we have a tendency to push push back against what God is saying and resist what he's telling us to do, especially when it comes from an authority in our lives parents, Christian ministry leadership, church leadership. And instead of submitting, we bristle, we resist, we become irritated or angry. And it tells us whether or not we really do want to know and follow God's word. And then James says that we are to receive the word while putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. In other words, if you are harboring sin in your life, if you are ignoring your sin or in any way refusing to deal with your sin, then you are not able to meekly receive the word. You might be tempted to react somewhat to this because you might think, well, well, sure, I sin from time to time. I mean, doesn't everybody? I mean, no one's perfect, but I wouldn't describe my sin as filthiness, and rampant wickedness. I mean, that's way over the top. No, you wouldn't describe your sin that way, but God describes your sin that way. We don't see our sin like he does. And we don't imagine his holiness as it really is. Otherwise, we would all be saying in our hearts with Isaiah, woe is me, for I am undone. When you are confronted by any sin or thinking or behavior that is contrary to God's word and your reaction is, well, at least I'm not as bad as this person or that person or what do they think or, hey, I'm not out doing drugs or something like that. I mean, give me a break. Lord, I'm not as other men and I thank you for that, right? Just like the Pharisee. If this is our reaction, then brothers and sisters, this is a window into our heart to see that we are lacking meekness. So James says we can dismiss the word in hastiness. We can resist the word in anger. We can ignore the word in sin. And then he says, finally, we can disobey the word of God in self-deception. Because if you look at what he says in verses 20 through 25, he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That is, deluding yourselves, pulling the wool over your own eyes. Well, how is one self-deceived by hearing and not obeying? James gives us the answer through an illustration. He says, for if uh, anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Remember from our study, this isn't a mirror like today's mirror. We can clearly see ourselves. 
their mirrors were like brightly polished metal. You had to look very closely at it and stare at it and think about what you're seeing in order to see something in the mirror. So the man looks intently, it says. But then verse 24 says he goes away and once, at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's God's word, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Two people hear the word. In fact, they both look intently. But in the end, the difference between the two is that one continues to look and he obeys and the other doesn't. And it is only the one who obeys who is blessed by God. You see, we are self-deceived when we think that the mere performance of a religious activity is the point rather than our obedience to God. Because we can all feel like we're okay because we're doing different religious activities. But are we really obeying? I remember when I was like seven or eight years old, I was in the back seat between my sisters and leaning over into the front seat watching my dad drive the car. Uh, and you might think, well, how could you see your dad drive the car? You're in the back seat seat belted. Well, you know, those were back in the days. You just throw them in the back of the station wagon, you know, and uh, you don't wear bike helmets and things like that. So it's, su- it's surprising all of us survived. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm in the back seat, and I'm sure my dad doesn't remember this, but um, I was watching him drive, and I, I, I asked him a question. I said, Dad, is driving fun? And his answer was profound. I've never forgotten it. He thought for a moment, and then he said, I don't know. That's what he said. (laughs) Do you like driving? I don't know. Now, that must be profound because I'm still contemplating it all of these years later, (laughs) or else I'm pretty stupid. Is the act of driving fun? Well, it certainly can be. I mean, driving for driving's sake. We babysat a little Miata for a summer. Stick shift, four speed. That little car could whip around. I don't know that they knew I was whipping around the Blue Ridge in this thing, but uh, it was really, hopefully they don't watch this online. Um, but uh, it, that, was, that was fun to drive, you know, and, 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 and just hitting the, the gear just the right way. The act of driving could be really fun depending on what car you're driving, driving for driving's sake. But did any of you on your way driving to church this morning think, wow, this is so much fun? I know Brother Joe didn't because <laughs> uh, I think he broke down actually, uh, but, uh, which is so ironic. But anyway, uh, so... Uh, <laughs> You probably weren't thinking that driving was fun, especially this morning, some of you. But most of us probably drove here and we were just thinking about getting here. The driving wasn't the point. The point was the destination. Do you like driving? I don't know. How many of us had fun getting dressed this morning or combing our hair or brushing our teeth? or any number of mundane things you did that were really important, and we're glad you did, but they weren't an end in themselves. They were a a means to a greater end. And by the same principle, if we think that we are living for God because we are involved in a lot of spiritual activity, maybe we hear the word read, the word uh, preached a lot, I mean, we can, we can listen to preaching nonstop if we want to. It's everywhere. Just pull out your phone and start listening to sermons. 
but we're not meekly surrendering to what God wants us to do, then we are missing the point. We are pulling the wool over our own eyes. We are inoculating ourselves with just enough spiritual activity to keep us from becoming truly spiritual. Now, this has all been a kind of lengthy review of verses 19 through 25. Some of you are thinking, you know, you're, you're preaching the whole sermon. You took two weeks to preach, and that's, that's, that's true. But you see, verses 26 and 27 that we're going to go into this morning are really a part of verses 19 through 25. In fact, verses 19 through 25 set us up for what James is going to tell us in verses 26 and 27. He's going to take this principle of meekly receiving God's word and he's going to begin to apply it right away. Begin to apply it right away. We only understand 26 and 27 in context of 19 through 25. So let's see what James says now. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but, notice, deceives his own heart. This person's religion is worthless. See the application? Here is one of these self-deceived people who James is talking about who is going through the motions of being religious but is not being obedient. Uh, not being obedient. Here he says he is not bridling his tongue. We'll, we'll focus on that in just a few minutes. But here is a person who comes to church, sings, sits through a sermon, looks respectable, works at a Christian ministry, but there's a refusal to guard or control an area in his life where he is sinning. In fact, James is probably making us think about a person who is actually putting on religious airs. It does, really, in the context, you can see this, probably because of, of the context of the Pharisees in the first century. You know what I mean. Somebody who stands out as particularly religious because they, they try to stand out among their Christian brothers and sisters and, and to, 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 to be especially religious. And sometimes when they pray, you kind of hear stained glass in their voice. You know what I'm talking about? They're just, they're just all put together in the, in, the, in the whole Christian way. When James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, this could actually be translated, if anyone seems religious. The Greek word for seem and think are literally, it's literally the same word. So James could easily be talking about that person among Christian peers who tries to present himself or herself as a little more pious than the rest, a little more holy than everybody else. This person seems religious, but if there is no meek submission to the word, there is no true following of God. This person's religion is empty, pointless, without purpose, He's going through the motions. He's like a student who says, yes, I read the assignment. Don't mean to bring extra conviction on any of you, by the way, but uh, he's like a student who says, yes, I read the assignment, but really she only looked at the words on the page, turning the pages again and again, looking at all of the text so that they could check, yes, I read the assignment, but never connecting with the ideas, never consciously engaging with the meaning. Have you ever done that before? You're reading a book, but you're thinking about something else. You're, you're like, it's time to read my Bible, let's say. 
and you're thinking about what you've got to get to the store later <laughs> or some event that's coming up or some conversation you have to have with somebody. And you're going through the motions of reading, but your eyes are literally scanning the text, but there is no mental connection with the author. Would you agree with me that if you're doing that, you're not doing what any of us should probably call reading? Well, James would say going through the motions of religion without obedience to God should not be called religion. It should be called worthless religion, empty, vain, futile. Do you remember seeing that word worthless or vain in the text of the New Testament before? Because the Apostle Paul calls something else worthless or vain using the same word that we see here. You remember what that is? The gospel without the resurrection. Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That's the same word for vain or worthless that we see in our text here in James 1. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, because there's no resurrection, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, James might say to us, if you are merely going through the motions of religion but are not obeying God, then your faith is vain. Would James say that you are still in your sins? Well, not if you know Christ as your Savior, not if you've trusted his death for, in his death for your sins and his resurrection. But, but James is going to tell us in chapter 2 that faith without obedience is no faith at all. It's dead faith, faith that is not alive, faith that is not real. So we ought to think very carefully whether we are merely going through the motions of religion without truly seeking God through the person of Jesus Christ. If all you have is religious works, but no relationship with God through Christ, then any one of us here this morning who knows the Lord would tell you, you are still dead in your sins and you need to come to Christ for salvation. Now, I want to throw out a warning here for every one of us. James mentions religion three times in this text. Do you see that? Worthless religion, he says, is wrong. And some of us have come to despise empty spiritual activity, haven't we? Motions of being spiritual with no spiritual reality behind it. We can detect that and we don't, we don't like it. We don't recognize it in ourselves so much, like any other sin. It's harder to detect in us, but we see it really clearly in others, and we don't like it. But we have come to despise empty religion so much that we don't even like the idea of religion at all. In fact, we are sometimes suspicious of those who regiment their lives to never miss their devotions, who always try to spend time in prayer, who spend time thinking about certain standards of behavior, who are often turning the conversation to the Lord. The truth is, we don't need less of that kind of Christian commitment. We need more of it. Piety is a biblical virtue. Holiness is commanded by God. It's pretend piety and pretend holiness that we need to despise because God despises it. But notice that James doesn't say to get rid of religious activity. 
he tells us to make sure our religious activity is pure. He says this in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I want you to notice, first of all, there's a contrast in these verses between worthless religion and pure religion. What is pure religion? Or as James says it, what is pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father? Pure religion is religion that is real. It's authentic. It's transparent. Unadulterated. Undefiled by hidden motives. No pretenses. Lived out by a person whose only concern is truly seeking the will of God the Father, and that's it, with little or no concern for what other people think. I think that this pure religion is beautifully expressed in a poem that was written by Joe Bailey in 1969. He's an older author who passed away in the 80s, but I remember reading his poetry when I was growing up. And he said this, he said, Lord of reality, make me real. Not plastic, synthetic, pretend, phony, an actor playing out his part, hypocrite. I don't want to keep a prayer list, but to pray. Not to agonize to find your will, but to obey what I already know. To argue theories of inspiration, but to submit to your word. I don't want to explain the difference between eros and philos and agape. I want to love. I don't want to sing as if I mean it. I want to mean it. I don't want to tell it like it is, but to be it like you want it. I don't want to think another need me, but I need him, else I'm not complete. I don't want to tell others how to do it, but to do it. To have to always be right, but to admit it when I'm wrong. I don't want to be an involved person, a professional, but a friend. I don't want to be intense, insensitive but to hurt where other people hurt. Nor to say, I know how you feel, but to say, God knows, and I'll try if you'll be patient with me. And meanwhile, I'll be quiet. I don't want to scorn the cliches of others, but to mean everything I say, including this. Do you crave this morning a real religion an expression of Christianity that is pure and genuine so that what you see is what you get. No pretenses, just a desire to trust and love and obey God. James says that in contrast to those who practice worthless religion, there are three essential behaviors of those whose religion is pure. And they're right here in the text and they're easy to see. Any one of us could come up with this outline this morning. First of all, those who religion, whose religion is pure willingly bridle the tongue. 
Because James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, his religious is, is worthless. He doesn't list this in verse 27, but it's implied there in verse 26. In other words, those who are truly religious, truly pious, truly determined to obey God are willing to bind themselves to an ethical behavior. They want to do what is right. Their religion has a moral impact on what they allow themselves to do or not do. And notice he suggests that those with true religion bridle their tongues. A bridle, of course, is the hand, is, is the headgear that is used to direct a horse. It consists of a bit in the horse's mouth, and the reins are attached to the bit so that the horse can be turned. Many of you know this already. And James is going to go into great detail about this later on. As most of you probably know, if we go to chapter 3, he's going to say, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says with his tongue, he's a perfect man. If you can master your tongue, you can master anything about yourself. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man and, will, and is able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the horse's mouths so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And he goes on for nine more verses about the tongue. We're going to get a lot about the tongue in chapter 3. And we'll focus on those details when we get there. But the question we should be asking right now is, why does he mention the tongue here in verse 26? Why the tongue? Out of all the things he could have said as an example of ethical behavior, why the tongue? I think the answer is in verse 2 of chapter 3 here. James is basically saying, if you can control your tongue, you can control anything else about you. In James' mind, there is something very difficult about controlling the tongue. Might we agree with him about that? If we're going to sin in some way, usually the tongue gets involved. How many times has your tongue gotten you into trouble? We don't have to have a show of hands this morning. How many times have you said something that wasn't honoring to God? Think about all of the sins of the tongue and the damage those sins do to people and how they render dishonor to God. Lying, tattling, cursing, blasphemy, silly talk, gossip, slander, whispering, backbiting, sowing discord, griping, swearing, filthy or dirty talking, anger, sinful criticism, false accusation, flattery, pride, anger, bragging, cruelty, mean sarcasm, talking back, bitterness, or resentment. We're like, stop, <laughs> that's enough. These are all sins that the Bible in one place or another says. We should not be doing this with our tongues. And the list could go on. How many times in one week do we commit sins with the tongue? Why do we do that? Someone says, well, I can't help it. It's just the way I talk. Years ago, we moved into a neighborhood in the Minneapolis area, and I met our neighbor an old guy, pretty gruff and stern. And he was one of these guys you meet where every other word is a swear word. You know what I mean? It, it's not like he's, he's angry necessarily. It's just the way he talks. He curses all the time. But then he said, so what do you do? Well, I'm a youth pastor at the Baptist church downtown and studying for the ministry at Central Baptist Theological Seminary. Do you know, I didn't hear that guy swear one more time in the five years that we lived there. 
because he could turn it off when he wanted to because he chose to bridle his tongue. As an unbeliever, he chose to bridle his tongue. No, it's not that you can't help it. It's that you won't help it. There are so many things that God commands us as believers. He's not going to command us something we can't do, that he doesn't put his power behind through the Spirit. It's our want to that gets in the way. Have you ever been having a heated argument with somebody and you're speaking angry words and then the phone rings and you pick it up and you're like, hi, how you doing? <laughs> you completely change. We can lie and justify our lies. We can speak kindly to people at church, but be rude to people in our own home. We can be polite with our speech in front of, a, in front of the spiritual people that we don't want to offend. When we get with our unspiritual friends, we can swear and use off-color humor and say crude things about people. Sometimes when we're mad, we can just say bitter and ungrateful things because we actually enjoy it. We enjoy the idea of telling somebody off, especially if they're not there when you're telling them off. Telling someone off because they really deserve it. And when you think about it, the, the illustrations that James is using here is so revealing because there are so many sins we commit with our tongue. And when we sin with our tongue, it ought to be a window into our heart revealing a lack of meekness, a lack of submissiveness to God's word. But when we yield to God's will, we bridle our tongue. We work by God's grace through the help of the Spirit to be kind with our tongue, encouraging, truthful, grateful, consistent. And you know what? It takes a lot of control from the Spirit for that to happen. A lot of control. Because we will be talked about if we live this way. People will be rude to us. People will belittle, will belittle us and act condescending. And, and, and in those moments, we have sometimes the power to put them in their place. You might have gone away from a conversation and later thought, oh, I should have said this. You know, Why don't I think of it in the middle of the conversation? Well, it might be by God's grace that you didn't think of it in the middle of the conversation. Although, truth be told, it would have been so great. Ironic justice and all of that. We could give them a piece of our mind, but we don't because we're more concerned about God's will than about being over the top in that conversation. And when we live like that, nobody will know and usually nobody will care that we held our tongue, that we didn't say anything back or that we gave a soft answer, as Proverbs says. But you know, that's what Jesus did. 1 Peter 2.23 says that when Jesus was reviled, that is bitterly cursed and criticized, he did not revile back. And this is in the context of his crucifixion. Jesus bridled his tongue. So you see, how we use our tongues reveals whether or not we really want to practice religion purely. Because there is no glory in it. There's no self-exaltation. There's no self-vindication in keeping our tongue in check. There's no glory for us. There's only our concern that God is glorified in our life. 
So you bridle your tongue because you purely desire to live for the Lord and please him. And that's the only motivation. Lord of reality, make me real. But there's another essential behavior for those whose religion is pure. Those with pure religion demonstrate genuine compassion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit, that's that's a great biblical word, to help care for, often used of the Lord's, uh, peop, uh, the, the Lord's help of his people, to visit, to care for orphans and widows in their affliction. Now we're left with the question again, why orphans and widows? Why, why does James go here? Of all of the things he could have mentioned, why this? This is an instance where a little social uh, socio-historical background can help us discern the meaning of the text. Imagine, if you will, a world where there is no social welfare. If you've lived in the United States all your life, you can't imagine a world like that. But imagine a world like that. Imagine where there's no social welfare. A world where the family structure is the only means of provision. In that kind of culture, Widows and orphans were the most helpless. There was no husband, no parents to provide for a widow or for orphans. So they had to be cared for at their own expense. And they're low on the social scale, so they're easily overlooked. No one is really thinking about them. Remember the first disruption in the early church in Acts 6, right? The the problem was that the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked when they were distributing the proceeds from the church sharing with one another. So these ladies were not only in the class of widows, they were in the class of those who were not native to Jerusalem. Their ancestors were one of the ones who had remained behind at Babylon or Egypt. They hadn't come back with the others. And so they had learned to speak Greek better than Hebrew, and and everybody knew who they were. So in the early church, where we read in Acts 2 that they had all things in common and they were, uh, nobody was lacking because they were selling their things and bringing the money and laying it before the apostles' feet and so that everybody was, was getting what they needed. In, in that environment, there was a section of believing widows that everybody had forgotten about. And this is the, in the perfect early church, right? The apostles forgot about these women. They were in big trouble. Because no one provides for them. They're low on the scale of society. They're easily overlooked, and there's a stigma about them. If someone found out that you were spending your time assisting widows and orphans, you would gain nobody's care, really, nobody's acclaim. In fact, if they found out, they might think, well, that's quaint, that's nice, I'm glad somebody does that. I'm glad somebody can spend their life doing that but you're not going to get a lot of volunteers. You're not going to raise your your social esteem this way and put all of these ideas together and you also have a class of people that could be easily taken advantage of, and they were in the ancient world. They could take, uh, people could come and take what little they had and they could get away with it. And if no one helped them, they would likely die in poverty and hardly anyone would notice So if you don't help them, no one is going to call you out for it. 
We're really good at doing ministry that everybody notices, but we're very bad at doing ministry that nobody will see. For this reason, God made it part of Israel's law that they had to help widows and orphans. They had to let the excess gleanings lie in the fields and the vineyards, right? So that the the widows and orphans and those who didn't have something, those who were poor, could come and they would get something to eat. God even commands in Exodus uh, 22 as part of the law, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. God defends widows and orphans in his word. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows, God says, and your children fatherless. This is in the law. This is, this is in the details of the law that are giving really just a couple of chapters after the Ten Commandments. And you could tell that God is very concerned about this. We don't have time to look at the passages, but if you go through the Old Testament and look at the reasons God judged his people and sent them into exile, it was partly because of injustice in the land. Justice was gone. And one of the primary signs that justice was gone was that the widows and orphans were pleading for help and nobody was paying attention. So why does James say to this Jewish audience who knows all this, they, they know all this in their, in, their, in their Old Testament background, why does James say that pure religion is helping the widows and the orphans? Because if you have orphans and widows, you are showing compassion in an area where nobody is going to see and nobody is going to care. So if you truly want to show the compassion of Christ, if you want to practice your religion purely, minister in a hidden corner or meet someone's need without anybody having to know. Reach out to someone in the church that no one is really thinking about. Or visit those in our neighborhood who nobody really cares about. They're they're within two or three or four walking distance from this building. And share the gospel and get to know them. It's not that we don't care. Actually, we do care. I know we care. We're caring people. It's that if we don't show compassion to these people, nobody's going to call us out for it. Nobody's going to notice. Nobody's coming to me and saying, oh, no, I, I feel really burdened. It seems like by now we should have, we should have gone to every single house. I know we, we're planning on that, okay? But I mean, I mean, nobody's really pushing for that. Why? Because we don't think about it. And if you do have a ministry with someone in these ways, if you get there and it's successful and you uh, resist the urge of trying to tell everybody about it. Of course, we don't brag like that. Instead, we say, I have a praise. (laughs) I was able to selflessly and sacrificially help somebody today. (laughs) Pastors do this. Okay, I won't hide behind the third person. I do this. Pastors often feel guilty that they're not doing enough and they want their congregations to know they're actually serving the people and taking care of things. So they will mention they were able to visit or minister to certain people because if they don't say that, nobody will know. My wife has a word for this that she coined years ago. It's called pastor guilt. She's recognized it for years. But when our motivation is, is to be noticed, we are no better than the hypocrites Jesus warns us about in Matthew 6 who want everybody to know that they've been fasting or praying or giving. Lord of reality, make me real. 
Make us real. And then finally, James says that those who practice their religion purely, they guard themselves against worldly stains. He says that they keep themselves unstained from the world. And I think he's playing on words here. He he, he says that religion is pure and undefiled, and and this religion is to keep oneself unstained. There's three words here for purity and, and being unstained in the text. Pure religion, undefiled religion, is living submissively in obedience to the word of God with no hidden motives, no other agenda than to do what pleases God. It's when someone serves and prays and gives and worships only because they desire to serve and pray and give and worship. It's really not difficult to understand. It's just difficult to master. Living only in obedience to God purely all the way. Well, in the same way, keeping oneself unstained from the world is living in such a way that we are not infected by the sinful culture of the world purely all the way. Notice he does not say keep oneself from being totally immersed in the world as if a little defilement is to be expected. He says unstained. You know what? It's the word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1.19 when he says that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's that word. Do you think that Jesus could have been our savior from sin if he had been only a little stained by it? If he had been a lamb with only a few spots or blemishes? No, we would be lost in our sin. And yet, when it comes to how worldly we are, we don't compare ourselves to God's standard. Instead, we compare ourselves to other worldly people. That's not submitting meekly to the word. That's only trying to look unworldly enough to be accepted among our Christian peers, among our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we associate. In fact, one of the reasons that we have various Christian cultures in the United States and really wherever Western Christianity has invaded, one of the reasons, not all of the reasons, this is a very complicated subject actually, but one of the reasons I submit that you have various flavors of Christianity, some looking and surrounding more like the world than others, is because we are not all looking at the same standard. We're looking at one another. And those who look less like the world are guilty of it, and those who look more like the world are guilty of it. In other words, looking at one another for our standard instead of looking at the Word of God. And it creates this sort of us versus them mentality in the church of Christ. And people shop around for a church that fits their their flavor or their vibe. But who anymore is thinking about God's flavor and God's vibe? Do you know what James is going to tell us in chapter 4? He's going to tell us that if we're even a friend of the world, not the people of the world, but the, the world's culture, if we're friendly toward the culture, we want to be like the culture. We, when, when people look at us, they want to see like there's not really that much difference, that we kind of get along with the world's culture. If we're even a friend of that culture, James is going to say we're an enemy of God. He uses the word enemy. And he says, we're committing adultery against God. 
James did not pull any punches here. So what does God want us to do? He wants us to live in such a way to make choices about what we do and what we say and what we watch and all of that so that we do not pick up any stains from the world. So that we do not become infected with the standards and interests and love of an anti-God culture. And in the same vein of what he has been saying here, I believe he means we do this humbly and privately and we don't care what others are going to think and say about us. Notice he says, keep oneself unstained from the world. He doesn't say keep your brother or sister unstained from the world. Now, obviously, the New Testament has a lot about helping one another in their spiritual walk. In fact, Paul even says that we're to restore one another in a spirit of meekness while considering ourselves if we find somebody coming into a trespass. But I think what James is saying here is that pure religion, true religion, real religion is when I'm concerned about my own sin, my own worldliness, as if I'm the only sinner, I'm the chief of sinners. And I just want to be in fellowship with God. I don't have a burning desire to start a blog or a website or a ministry to go around and tell everybody else to do it like I figured out how to do it. I don't have to put my whole spiritual journey on social media so that people can be impressed with me. I simply and truly and purely want to get as far away from the world's culture as I can. And that's what matters to me because this is what God has said to do. James says, do you want to have a religion, a spiritual walk that's pure, that's real? He says, surrender your tongue to the word of God. Find someone to demonstrate genuine compassion to and don't tell a soul about it. And let the word of God be your standard for what is appropriate in relation to the world. I, I think that this text is the essence of Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Lord of reality, make me real. Not plastic, synthetic, pretend, phony, an actor playing out his part, hypocrite. I don't want to keep a prayer list. I want to pray. I don't want to agonize to find your will. I want to obey what I already know. I don't want to argue theories of inspiration. I want to submit to your word. I, want, I don't want to explain the difference between eros, philos, and agape. I want to love I don't want to sing as if I mean it. I want to mean it. I don't want to tell it like it is, but to be it like you want it. I don't want to tell others how to do it, but to do it. To have to always be right, but to admit it when I'm wrong. I don't want to be an involved person, a professional, but a friend. I don't want to be insensitive, but to hurt where other people hurt. I don't want to scorn the cliches of others or the lifestyle of others, but to mean everything I say, including this. And that is living up to your faith. Father, we're so thankful.